there has been, and I can't point to a point where it started or, or was completed, there's been a baffling change in our conception of the world as, as Americans, as a culture. And that is that we no longer really believe in evil. For us, every act of wickedness that you see, bad things that people do, can all be explained somehow. Probably there was some trauma that that person experienced as a childhood, and that's why they do all those horrible, reprehensible things. And if, if they hadn't had such a hard childhood, never would have happened. It can be explained through repression. You hear this one a lot, right? Well, somebody told them that they weren't allowed to do this thing, or they weren't allowed to live their sexuality out, and that's why they're acting this way. Or we blame the system. This is the, the, you know, the explanation du jour today, right? Well, the system is so corrupt, and that's why people act that way. You can't expect poor people to do the right thing because they're poor. You can't expect rich people to do because they're rich, and, and this system is broken. Or just ignorance. What you think is wickedness is not actually wickedness. That's just your own bias and your own problem, and you've got to get over that. This is why every movie, doesn't matter how evil the villain is, there's going to be a flashback when they were a little boy getting slapped around by some school teacher or something like that. Oh, that's why he killed all those people. It was, it was his hard childhood, you know. And we have a hard time really grasping the fact that evil is real and that evil lives in the heart of every person. This is why we, for some, some of us or some people, can't comprehend the idea of going to war with somebody because we can't think of anybody that would be so bad that we would need to go out and actually fight them. And this has weakened us as individuals, first of all, because if you grow up and you live as an adult thinking that there's no such thing as evil and that people are basically good and that everybody has your best interests at heart, you are going to get so beat up by life because that is not the way it is. And y'all know that is true. You'll be so vulnerable. You'll be so hurt. And eventually you'll become very, very bitter and very, very cynical because you know that the world is full of wickedness, but you were taught and we're told to believe that there was no such thing as that, and you feel lied to. I've met people like this. It also weakens us collectively because we're un unable to recognize something as evil. And when something evil is presented to us, rather than rejecting it, we seek to try to understand it. And we think that if I, if I consider something to be evil, the problem must be with me, not with what I'm looking at. And every, every single reprehensible thing has its own advocacy group now, it seems. And here's the worst part of all this. We began in the book of Romans our discussion of the gospel with God's wrath. God's wrath against sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. But apart from the knowledge of sin, apart from a belief in wrong, in evil, a belief in morality, really, that seems cruel, doesn't it? How could God send someone to hell? Even that question reveals an ignorance of the real hearts of people. How could God send anyone to hell? It's like, really? Anyone? You can't think of anybody that would deserve to go to hell? Or at the very least, it seems confusing. If in the church we're telling people that God sends sinners to hell, but we're also telling them there's good in all people and everybody's wonderful and it's going to be great, kids grow up confused. And are they going to go after the God that sends people to hell that they quite can't understand or the thing that tells them that the world is nice and fluffy and wonderful? It's a major theological step backwards for us because now your evangelism can't begin with forgiveness. It's got to begin with wrath because people don't get that. I don't know if they ever did, but that's kind of how we think about it now. Is that no, no, no. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And yet you can see even in our own day, how that whole idea that nothing is wrong, everything is good, everybody should just get along and be happy and live whatever life, that whole idea is starting to crack and crumble because it doesn't work. That's not really the, the, the popular conception anymore. You know, do whatever, live your own life, be tolerant, whatever. Now everybody's got this hard edge because they've realized, all right, we said we can do whatever we want and people have done some horrible things. So what we need is, is some rules. What we need is some laws. We're going to start to impose these things. And then when they realize that people don't really want to submit to those new rules, a new level of anger comes up. And we're seeing this start to happen, and it's, it's unsustainable. And God knew that. 
God knew that if you try to tell yourself that there is no such thing as evil, there's no such thing as wrong, everything is basically good, you're going to get disappointed. And then what will happen is you'll try to correct that, but you can't correct it. So the Lord says, here's my plan. I'm going to spend centuries proving to the whole world that sin is real. Instructing us that sin has a fierce grip on every person's heart. And only until we grasp that are we ready for Jesus. This is what we call the law with a capital L. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11, through 11, Paul says, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul just says the law is good for those that are walking in darkness and that it is in accordance with the gospel and that the law can be used to lead people to the feet of the cross. And the even better news is that any law can serve that purpose. It doesn't have to be the law of Moses, although that was the one that God used. Any standard that anybody holds will very quickly show them you can't keep the standard, which will lead you right back to the feet of the cross. And our, our floundering nation is painfully relearning the bad news, which was, was Romans 1 through 3. Do you remember that? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're learning it culturally, and it's fascinating to me as, as, a, as a theological thinker to see this. It's not a pleasant process. But those in the church saying for generations, we're saying, this whole everybody can do whatever they want thing, it's unsustainable, it won't last. And the world told us, y'all are just a bunch of bigots. It's not lasting. And it's shifting and it's changing. But you know what it's doing is it's reopening the door for the gospel. It won't be much longer that you're going to have to try to explain to people. You know that folks are sinners, don't you? Well, people are starting to get that again. But don't you dare think that this is a them message. Oh good, Tyler's going to blast the world. They need to be blasted. No, no, no. This is an us message. We must never forget the sin that bound us and think that we're going to come to the place where yeah, it's really not such a big deal because the law is good and was given for a good reason. And we're no longer under the law, but we've, we're not going to fully appreciate what it means to be under grace until we recognize what the law revealed about each one of us. So we're going to do verses 7 through 13 today. I just want to start with verse 7 where Paul lays out his, his main principle that he'll then explain. With another one of those rhetorical questions, he uses a lot of them in this section. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay, so last week we laid out in no uncertain terms that Christians are not under the law of Moses. How much of it do we have to keep? None of it. Now you hear that. Some might conclude, especially the Jewish Christians in Paul's audience, so you're saying that the law is an evil thing? And Paul responds with that Greek, megenoita, that very strong, by no means. Literally, may it never be. I like the old King James, the way they put it. God forbid. Very dynamic translation, but it, it gets the same punch, doesn't it? So you're saying that the law is evil? No, of course not. He says, I only know what sin is because of the law. So how could the law be sin? Some folks try to put that on God. They say, God is not righteous. You only know what righteousness is because of God. So don't try to put that on him. I like to tease my sons about that because they'll, they'll tell me something. I'm like, you learned that from me. Don't, don't throw back at me like you know about it or something. The law. We know what sin is because of the law. And of course, this is a capital L law. This is the law of Moses, the Torah. That's what the word Torah means. It means law. And the law was given as the special revelation of God's righteousness. We have two kinds of revelation, general and special. General means this is what everybody can get. 
Everybody can more or less get that killing people is a bad thing. Or at the very least, you shouldn't kill anybody anytime you want. That's not good, right? That's general revelation. Everybody can generally understand that God exists just by looking around at the world around them. But the law is God's special revelation where God gave to his holy men to write down what was right and what was wrong so that we'd know for sure because otherwise how do we know? Sometimes we get a little intellectual with ourselves and we say things like, well, how can anybody really know what's right? Well, I think most of us can know if we follow the conscience that God gave us. But the Lord goes, just to eliminate any doubt, I'm going to have some folks write it down. And this was not just done through commandments. We have ten commandments. There's a lot more than that in the law. I hope you know that. He even gives us the tenth one right here. The law said, you shall not covet. He gave us the whole law, but he also gave us a lot of other things. He gave us a lot of stories where he illustrated and showed how he worked in people's lives and what he accepted and what he rejected and how to understand God's will and God's voice. He gave us a whole bunch of amazing songs and poetry that describe his character and his righteousness in in these amazing poetic terms. He gave us the prophets that were often out there correcting people for getting it wrong in this very strong, passionate language. So the Lord didn't just give us commandments. He gave us a whole scripture. This is how we know what is right and what is not for sure beyond any subjectiveness. Psalm 119. All of Psalm 119 is about the Bible and the word of the Lord and how great it is. But I'm just going to read these two verses. It said, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Why is it sweet to have the word of God? Because it shows you what the false way is. And you can have understanding. What a great word. To understand what is good and what is evil through the word of the Lord. This is not to say that right and wrong didn't exist before the law came. This is a very important point to remember. Romans 5.13 says that sin did exist before the law, but where there's no law, sin is not counted. So of course there was right and wrong before this. But God laid it down in very specific, concrete terms. This is because, and this is an important point for us all to know, where does good come from? What is good? We define what is good by what is godly. Whatever is like God is good. And whatever is not like God is what we call evil. In Exodus 3.14, God revealed himself to Moses as, I am. That is, God is self-existent. Nobody made God. God did not spring into existence. God did not evolve from some lesser thing and become God. He is. He always was. There was no universe that God was floating around in because he hadn't made the universe yet. If you think of God hovering in space, no, 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 there was no space. Because space cannot contain the Lord. He was all that existed. And he created a universe that was not him. This is important to note, too. Oh, God is everything. No. no. (laughs) God is God. Everything else comes from God. So because the whole world that God made, the universe, all the people in it, because it is not God, it is held to the standard of God. And whatever is not like him is, by definition, sinful. Because if it's not like God, that means it is an intrusion into existence. God is all that there was. That was the Lord. Whatever he was, was good. He makes something else. And if it's not like him, all of a sudden it's like a virus in the program. It's like cancer. That's what sin is. And we know that that's true because sin only makes things worse, does it not? Nobody goes, wow, I'm so glad I sinned. No one's ever said that. Except for maybe like five seconds after you were finished. That's the standard of God. And so God in the Bible, did not just reveal a list of commandments. He was primarily revealing himself because he is what is good. And we are not just called to follow a list of rules. We are called to be like God. That's what it means to be good. And you might say, well, that's that's impossible. (laughs) I can't be like God. And God would never ask us this. And listen, there are some well-meaning Christians. And I know, I think, what they mean when they say this. But it always rubs me the wrong way when I hear this. When they say, God doesn't need you to be perfect. Now listen, God doesn't need you to be perfect to be saved. But the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 
as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the Lord said, be holy because I'm holy. And so, oh, that's Old Testament. We don't need that. Well, Peter comes right back in and says, New Testament, be holy for God is holy. The standard is perfection, perfect righteousness. And the penalty for unholiness, as we've seen several times in Romans already, is eternal death in hell. The wages of sin is death. So how could God send someone to hell? Because sin brings wrongness into God's world that he made. It is bringing cancer and wickedness and pain and sorrow into God's perfect world. He cannot allow it to continue. The only reason he allows it to continue now is because we, the carriers of that virus, are his children and he loves us so much. But there will come a day where the Lord is going to destroy all of it eternally in a place called hell, the fiery darkness where the worm is not quenched. That's the standard. That's what the law was for. And God taught us the the penalty for sin too, by the way, that in the law, he insisted upon perfect justice. There was no atonement for willful sin in the Old Testament. Did you know that? You can make a sacrifice for an accidental sin. If you were in a heat of passion and did something that you normally wouldn't do, if you accidentally committed murder, if you, you know, were fighting with somebody, you were angry and you struck them or something like that. But if you just deliberately said, I'm going to do this, you you couldn't make a sacrifice for that. Because the Lord was trying to tell people, no, don't think you can go off and do something and then make a sacrifice and God will make it all okay. The penalty for sin was death. But God did show us that he would accept a perfect sacrifice. So the law is profoundly important. It's not evil. It has definitively shown us what is right. It has laid out for us what is good before the Lord. So when people come in, okay, so Paul, you're saying that the law is bad, right? No, the law is not bad. I'm bad. And this is what he's going to go on to say, verses 8 through 12 now. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Using the example from verse 7. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now Paul explains in this passage how the law exposes sin by holding up an impossible standard that when we try to keep causes the sin in our flesh to get a little upset, shall we say. Now, it's a little structural note of how we interpret this passage. Verse 7, Paul began speaking in the first person, saying, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. And he's going to continue using this first person language to the end of this chapter. Verses 8 through 13 are in the past tense. He's talking about what did happen, what had happened. And then in verse 14, he's going to switch to the present tense, saying what is happening right now. And there's a lot of debate over how to understand that section of chapter 7. Does that describe the Christian life? Does that describe the sinner's life? Does that describe the life under the law, the carnal Christian's life? We're going to talk about that next time. But I think this section is a little easier to understand. Uh, The best way to understand these, I think, is that Paul in verses 8 through 13 is speaking in a general theological way of the effect of sin. What does sin do to a person when the law is brought in? I don't think he's so much referring to a specific time in his life, except as his life is representative of everyone's life when sin came into their lives. And I don't think you really need to come to a firm decision on that to understand this passage properly. I think there's a lot of Adam and Eve language that he's using here that we'll, we'll look at in just a minute. But just something to note, that there's a definite shift here when he gets into this section. And then in verse 13, it's going to switch again, and uh, the chapter will intensify. The big uh, debate basically comes down to, uh, do, do Christians still struggle with sin? <laughs> it's basically the question. So we'll get to that next time, as I said. 
But what he does here is he says, so the law is sin? He goes, no, of course not. And in verse 8, he puts the blame for evil not on the law, but on the sin that lives in him. Sin lives in him, the internal foe. This is, has been the, the solution of people throughout history, and very often, I would say, naive people who think, well, the problem is the law. People can't keep it. So if we get rid of the law, then everything will be just fine. And you live life for just a little bit, and you realize that won't work very well, will it? You know, that's, I've got some libertarian buddies that believe just everything should be legal, and there should be no government, you know, anything. And, you know, they've got some good things to say, but they're like, you know, why do we even need traffic laws? It's like, have you ever been out of this country? <laughs> you ever been to a place where they don't have traffic laws? People don't just, like, naturally find their or No, people blow through the intersection honking, and this guy comes in with a flock of goats going through the intersection. And, you know, that, that's a very minor, minor, minor example. But we hear this today, too, right? That, well, the, these poor people that are struggling with their sexuality, well, when we tell them that there's only male and female, well, they feel really bad. So what do we do? We say there's no such thing as male and female, and then they'll feel much better. And we say, but you, you pull that, you know, that, that you're playing Jenga. You pull that Jenga piece out the bottom, a lot of other things are going to fall down. And those same people are still having such a hard time, by the way, and we ought to feel very bad for such people like that. Getting rid of the law doesn't change anything because it's the internal matter, the sin that lives in you, that is the issue. Because he says that sin took an opportunity through the commandment. And he's specifically referring to the 10th commandment here, which is covetousness. He says it seized an opportunity to kill me. Paul signifies this as when he died. And there are some that want to use this as an example of the age of innocence doctrine. I don't know if you can push that quite so far. Like I said, I think he's thinking in, in general terms here. He said, oh, I, I'm fine. Everything is just fine. Thou shalt not covet. No problem. Now I'm coveting. Sin lies dead. I don't think he's meaning that sin has no power. I think the, the idea here is, is that sin is dormant. It's not a concern. It's not challenged. That sin lives in you, and because you've never been exposed to a place where you needed to challenge that part of yourself, you don't really think about it. But then you come across the law, which says something like, thou shalt not covet. Let me give you a biblical example here, and we'll use the example of covetousness. That word in Greek is epithumia. It's actually translated lust in a lot of places. It's any kind of illicit desire, wanting something that you shouldn't have. And this is a difficult one. Because it's all inside. And really all sin is that way, right? Jesus said if you commit lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery as far as the Lord is concerned. But this is covetousness. And that sin lies dormant. It's, it's dead until the law comes in. Let's put it this way, that you've got these sins living in you, coiled like a snake. It's just lying there, not, not saying anything, not doing a lot of things. And all of a sudden, you're coming, you come across an opportunity. And sin sees that opportunity, and that snake rears up and strikes. Let's use the example of, of Ahab here from 1 Kings 21. Ahab was the king of Israel. He was married to the Sidonian princess Jezebel. Not a good name to name your daughter if you're going for a Bible name. Very wicked woman. And Ahab was the worst king Israel ever had. How do you like that designation? But he sees this man Naboth has a vineyard, and he wanted it. Now, so far, there's no trouble. We see lots of things that we go, oh, I would like that. Your neighbor rolls up in a really nice car. You think, I want that. And what does Ahab do? He says, let me buy it from you. So far, so good. There's no issue. Can I buy your vineyard? Naboth comes in and says, no. There actually kind of was a problem because this was the ancestral inheritance of Naboth's family and land was not supposed to change hands like that in the, uh, in the Old Testament law. They were supposed to keep their family land in the family. But, I mean, really, you know, there are worse things than this. Would have gone back to Naboth's family at the year of Jubilee. It wasn't wrong to do this. Wasn't wrong to admire it. Wasn't wrong to desire it. Wasn't wrong to offer to buy it. But when Naboth said no, you ever have a sweet little girl? Mommy, can I have a cookie? And then you say no. It's like feeding them after midnight, isn't it? They just, everything changes in that moment. It says, Ahab went home sullen and vexed. Pouting is, is what he's doing. He goes home to the palace and he said he got in bed and he rolled and turned his face to the wall. How childish is this, is this king? Well, you get a sense of Jezebel's character here because nobody can get King Ahab to eat. So she comes in 
and says, what are you doing? He says, well, I want Naboth's vineyard, and he won't let me buy it. She goes, are you the king of Israel or not? Now, she came from Sidon, where the king did what the king wanted. So she goes, don't you worry. I'll, I'll show you how to get what you want, Ahab. And so she had these people falsely accuse Naboth of blaspheming the Lord, and they brought him on this false trial, and they executed him. And then they took Naboth's vineyard. And this is when Elijah came in, and Elijah denounced Ahab for this. But do you see what I'm talking about here? Covetousness. Sin was dead. Sin lied dormant. It was quiet. I'd like your vineyard, please. No, thank you for asking, but I'm not going to sell it. And all of a sudden, that, that sin's tail started to rattle a little bit. Because it was being awakened. It was being challenged. The law was saying, no, you can't do that. And so Ahab, all of a sudden, the great regal king becomes a pouting little baby boy. He becomes petulant. He becomes angry. He becomes unjust. And he becomes murderous because of his covetousness that was quiet until he was told, no, that's what the law does. Seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Was, it, was the commandment wrong? Thou shalt not covet or kill? No, Ahab was wrong. And when he ran up against God's righteous commandment, it woke something up inside of him that he maybe didn't even know was there. And he had a temptress for a wife that led him down that path. We all have had this process. When God's law runs up against our desires and we lash out. Maybe you've worked with people like this. Where they're asking for something and you have to tell them no. And all of a sudden they just lose their mind. And you go, what is such a big deal about this? Because the sin in their heart is being awakened it's grabbing hold of them. It's seizing an opportunity. This is God's way of demonstrating that sin is real, that evil is real, by holding up his righteous standard. It puts paid forever to the idea, I can stop whenever I want. No, you can't. Because the moment you try to stop, everything goes crazy. I mean, it doesn't even have to be sinful stuff, right? Oh, I'm going to stop smoking. No problem, I just won't smoke. And the whole body just freaks out, right? And, and I'm, it's, it's, a, it's an example. Sin is like an addiction, right? It grabs hold of you and it won't let you go. And God needed to show us that because we think, well, everybody's pretty much basically good inside. Everybody wants to do the right thing. You ever been in a moment where you realize, I don't want to do the right thing? I'm not questioning whether you did or not, but you've been there. I, I know what I want to do what I'm supposed to do, and I don't want to. I'd rather sin. I'd rather do the wicked thing. And this is what happens. When in that moment you sin, you've gone from that unintentional sin that you can fall into. Lord, wh how, why did I do that? To an act of rebellion. You have now transgressed the law, and it is a greater sin. That's what the law does. It's like in scripture or, or from, you've, you've heard these testimonies, I'm sure, when somebody who has a demon inside of them and they know, these demons are not stupid, they know they're about to be confronted by somebody that's full of the Holy Spirit and is, is going to act in the name of Jesus. And what friends of mine will tell me is like very often those things, they'll hide. Everything will seem totally normal and perfectly fine. And, you know, the, the girl, when she's at home, she's screeching and throwing things and, and full of all this filth, but you bring her to the pastor's office and everything seems just fine. And then what these guys will tell me is, well, then I'll just, we'll start to pray. And I'll start to pray in the name of Jesus. And I'll start to pray things like, Lord, we know the enemy has no authority over anybody when Jesus is king. And they said, and these things just begin to manifest because they can't handle it. Okay, this person actually is, is, is in the, under the control of an evil spirit. We've got to get it out of there. That's what sin does. Oh, everything's fine. I'm good. Look at me. Look at, look at my profile picture. Don't I look all put together? I took a shower and combed my hair this morning. Everything's good. You can't have that vineyard. And it all just comes out. This is why we say somebody's acting ugly, don't we? I'm not saying you are ugly. I'm saying the way you're acting makes us go, whoa. Where did that come from? It's like this too. When a churchgoer comes to church and loves it when the pastor preaches hard messages. Yeah, you preach it. You get them. Those folks need to hear that. Nobody's saying that, Pastor, good for you for doing that. But then he has a week where he talks about their thing. Well, it just seems a little much, don't you think? 
I can't believe you'd say something like that. I can see it. I've preached for long enough. You can see it in people. They just want to get up and they want to just tell me what's what in those moments. <laughs> Not happened to me, but my, my father has been preaching before where somebody got up, cussed him out, and left the room. A Christian. Because he had poked his thing. And all of a sudden, confronted with the law of God, that sin, it came out. It seized the opportunity. That's what the law is for. What was it trying to teach us? Jeremiah 17, 9, you know this verse. The heart is deceitful above all things. And I love the way the ESV puts it. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is, is sick. It does. It's sick. It has an infection called sin. And this is not to say that we're all happy about this. That's a kid's way of looking at, at evil. Is that, you know, every evil person is in the corner. <laughs> you know, just twisting their giant mustache and, you know, tying damsels to the, to the train tracks. And that's what sin is. And, you know, I remember watching a movie when I was a kid. And uh, a little, little kid. And they were talking about how uh, there's some kid in the movie was talking about, oh, my parents are always fighting and they're always angry at each other. And the kid wasn't a Christian. And in my little head, I thought, well, they're not Christians. Don't they like sin? Isn't that what it means? And I just, you know, I was ignorant and stupid. I, a little four-year-old kid, I thought, well, wouldn't they like fighting and anger and cussing? And wouldn't they like, you know, divorce? And wouldn't they like adultery? Because they're, they're not Christians. They love sin, don't they? Well, no, not really. But the thing is, we can't help it. We're at sin's mercy. It's got you by the throat. You know, that's what bullies will do. That's what abusive boyfriends will do. You're doing what I say. Everything's cool. But the minute you cross me, all of a sudden, here, come the, here comes the swing. And Paul gives us the sequence here in verse 11 of how this goes. Number one, we're going to run through these slower. But number one, sin seizes the opportunity. Number two, sin deceives us. And number three, sin kills its victim. So it goes from the opportunity to deception to death. And I'm going to use the example here of Genesis chapter 3 because I think this is where Paul is drawing some of this, this, uh, this language here. First thing sin does is it seizes an opportunity. Many people do not sin because they've never been pushed to the edge. They're nice people because they've never had anybody really get in their face and be mean to them before. But when that moment comes and there's an opportunity, that rattlesnake of sin starts shaking its tail and starts lashing out at people. When a chance to steal comes and you know you won't get caught, you're not a thief, you've never stolen anything in your life, but you're in a place where there it is and you know you won't get caught. Now, stealing is such a thing, we know it's a sin, but we hardly talk about it. It's like, who steals? People steal. I worked with thieves at my last job, and I'm dead serious. You're a thief. How can you say that? Because you just stole something, again. <laughs> or a chance to cheat. There are lots of guys that would never cheat on their wife, but if they knew they wouldn't get caught, I mean knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, knew. Maybe some of y'all in here felt something stir in you that freaked you out a little bit when I said that. You knew your husband would never find out. Like if you could have assurances from beyond the grave that nobody will ever know. Or the chance even to kill. People will do this. Happens every day. Sin rears its ugly head. It uses the law as an opportunity to stir this up. And you like when Satan said to Eve in the garden, did God really say? God couldn't have possibly said that. He's stirring up this desire in her by drawing out God's law. Number two, it deceives its host. We say that God's commandments, here's, the, here's how sin deceives us. You say, how can sin trick me? It tricks you. You ever come to the other side of a sin and you say, I was tricked. This isn't what I signed up for. Here's how sin deceives us. It says things like this. Well, God's commandments are so black and white, they just can't handle the complexity of the modern world. And things are so nuanced and so real. and it just can't. So, you know, sometimes we've got to just take God's commandments into our own hands and, and do what we think we should do. God is just, yeah, God's given us the ideal situation. But really, when you're real in real life, you know, God doesn't understand what it's like to grow up in my neighborhood, and sometimes you've just got to do what you've got to do. And God doesn't understand what it takes to get ahead in this country, or God doesn't understand what it's like living with a man like this or a woman like this. So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the, 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 the commandments, but not, not unless they go against what I really need to do in the moment. We justify rage. Oh, that don't, that's, that's a big one. 
being angry. Jesus said, love your enemies. That's the first thing you learned as a kid. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Do good to those who mistreat you. But we have a thousand reasons why we don't need to do it this time. Oh, yes, that's all true. But this situation, though, this situation is unique. This year is unique. This election is unique. Don't you understand? It's not. Lies. Oh, we can, we can justify lies. Well, you know, we even want to use biblical examples. Well, Rahab said that you know, the, the servants of God were not there, even though they were hiding on her roof. So that's going to justify you to what? Cheat on your taxes? Or idolatry? Loving things more than the Lord? It's deception. We think, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve the Lord by sinning. Don't we do this? There, there, was a, there have been generations of Christians that I'm going to serve the Lord by marching to Jerusalem and killing a bunch of Jews and Muslims. Doesn't God want Jerusalem to be in the hand of Christians? And we've justified, we're deceived. Oh, but I know what it's like when God speaks to me. This feels right. Listen, brothers and sisters, if it disagrees with this book in your hands, and a matter if it feels right, you do it because it's right. You will not die. God's, God said you would die. You won't die. Sin always tells us we won't die. It won't affect you. It won't matter. It won't affect your soul. It won't affect your church. It won't affect your family or your community. It won't rupture your marriage between you and your husband. It won't mess your kids up. And the number three, it kills its victim. When we've given into those things, we are shown to be dead spiritually. Sin only... It only ever kills things. Doesn't make things better. Doesn't improve situations. Sinning to make things better is just setting things up for a fall, isn't it? It's going to collapse later. And you make your world a little bit more like hell every time. You know how we say when you follow Jesus and you're being sanctified, you almost make the world to be like heaven on earth? The opposite of that is true, too. You can make your world a little bit more like hell before you ever get there when you give in to your sin. Just like when Adam and Eve, they didn't die in the moment, but it was coming and they were spiritually dead and kicked out of that garden. That's what sin does. Our failure to keep God's perfect law demonstrates that we are unable to keep his law. Not, oh, I, I, better luck next time. No, not, not next time. You've played this game every single day of your life multiple times a day. You can't do it. That's why the law, even though it is good and holy and righteous, is a herald of death and hell. It's the opposite of what it ought to be as God's holy standard. I mean, consider yourself. Have you exalted God as God alone, the first commandment? Or have you allowed other things to take God's place in your heart? Exalted other things. You claim to be a disciple of Christ, yet there are other philosophers and influencers and authors that you were going to do what they say way before you do what Jesus says. Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? All your neighbors, by the way. Even the one that has those signs in the yard. You love that neighbor like you love yourself? Not, well, I remember to pray for them. No, no, no. Do you love them like you love yourself? Because if you're not, that's half the law right there. Broken. Are you guilty of hatred? Which Jesus said is murder. In fact, Jesus said being angry with your brother, was murder. Jesus said insulting your brother was murder. Do you know that? Everybody who says to his brother, Raka, which means empty head. Everybody that insults his brother says will be guilty of hell fire. Are you guilty of that? Hating people? Or, talk, oh, I don't hate them, but do you, come on. Does it walk like a duck and talk like a duck and quack like a duck and swim like a duck? But uh, it, it's a duck. You hate, it's murder. You lust, it's adultery, Jesus said. I would never cheat on my wife, but where are those eyes going, brother? And ladies, don't think this is just a man thing. That, that is just as much a, a sin for women, too. Just because there's different motivations behind it doesn't make it any different. Have you lied? Have you stolen? Have you coveted? So, okay, yes, I have, but I'm going to stop right now. Yeah, that's when the rattlesnake comes alive. And it can, it can surprise you and baffle you. I don't want to do this. We're going to get to this next time. I don't want to do this, and it keeps happening. What's wrong with me? Sin is what's wrong with you. 
So God's law, as Paul says, it's holy and it's righteous and it's good, but it does us no good in terms of help for the soul. It can only show you where you stand. A mirror can't comb your hair for you. It can only show you that you need to do something about it. What does the law do? It exposes us as insufficient, as guilty, and as condemned. So verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. Are you getting this? It's not the law, it's sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that, here's the reason why, sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So here's another rhetorical question. So, all right, so the law is good. So you're saying God used something good to kill me? No, no, no. It exposes the thing that killed you. You have in this verse an an incredibly important phrase. The purpose of the law is that sin might be shown to be sin. The law is a spotlight showing you what's what in your heart. In Deuteronomy 30.15, Moses put it out there. He said, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Right? It was good or evil. Take your pick. But the problem is... Israel couldn't keep the law. He said, I'll bless you if you keep it. But guess what? They never did. They never did. They could not. And so they were repeatedly judged and torn apart by the nations around them. Even when they had godly rulers, they had like one or two where the Lord had nothing negative to say about them. Even the man after God's own heart, David, was a murderer and an adulterer and a liar. His son was an idolater. They could not. And that's what we learned in Romans 3. No one kept the law, ever. There's nobody you look at the Bible and say, ah, well, that guy kept it perfectly. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to show us where they got it wrong. Because the Lord is doing something through the law. He was playing a, a game, so to speak, that would take thousands of years to come to fruition. Any law, and this is what Paul said in Romans 2, whether it's Moses' law or anybody's law, it's unkeepable. You can't keep it. And anytime you try to live your life according to a law or a standard, you are waking up sin inside of you, and sin is going to be shown to be sin. And in fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give us a great example of this today. And, and don't think I'm, I'm, I'm coming at this to start pointing fingers and, and casting blame. We actually ought to be grateful for this because God is doing, I think, a similar thing in our culture that he was doing in Israel for thousands of years. We call it cancel culture, don't we? We've got this weird set of rules that if you break it, we're going to ostracize you, push you out of polite society. You can come groveling on your knees and then we'll send you away. And we don't like it. And we shouldn't like it. But what are we learning through this? What have we learned? Why do people get so upset with cancel culture? Because anybody can fall at any time. You can find anything on anybody. If we want to look, have you ever been perfectly not racist and perfectly not sexist and perfectly whatever? You can find anybody. And there are people that are digging through people's old social media stuff and their old books. And we say, hey, you shouldn't do that. Well, hold on a second. Why not? Why not? Why shouldn't we do that? It's exposing that everybody breaks that law. Everybody. And people are getting it. And people on that side of things are getting angrier and angrier and more bitter and more cynical because they're realizing we're all guilty. And then it starts to come on them a little bit. Maybe I'm guilty too. How am I supposed to get away from this? How am I going to get out from under this? I'm going to have to start calling out other people. Y'all, that's how legalism works. We've seen it in the church for generations. People that have got all kinds of sin in their life want to go around pointing out everybody else's problems. Cut your hair. What do you dress like that for? Silly stuff, because there's real issues going on at the base of this. The rage, the lack of forgiveness. There's no way to get out from underneath that. Just like the law. The world has invented its own law, its own standard, and no one can keep it. Hasn't that been what the Lord has taught us through the scriptures? That's Romans chapter 2. It says whether Moses' law or this guy's law, you can't keep it. Nobody can. They're all exposed. They're all liars. Right? No one is righteous. No, not one. This is why we got to be praying for these folks, y'all. Do you know what it's like? Have you ever been in a legalistic church before? 
ever been in a legalistic family where just the law was beat down into? That's these people that we get so angry about. And listen, there's plenty to oppose, right? But these people are bound up in the worst kind of pharisaical legalism because there's no way to keep it. There's no starting over. There's no start fresh. There's no born again moment. Here's the thing. God did provide a way to keep the law or at least to stave off the punishment of the law. And what was that? Through sacrifices. Year after year, people would come and make atonement through the sacrifice of a lamb. Every year. And you've got to imagine what this would be like. You're coming back. I sinned again. I've got to come back. Sinned again. I've got to come back. Sinned again. I've got to come back. Your whole life. Now, the righteous ones in the Old Testament understood that a lamb can't cover sin. What's a lamb going to do? It's a lamb. Instead, they stopped looking to the sacrifices and started looking to the Lord for mercy. David said in Psalm 51, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That is where God was trying to bring his people through the law. To the place where they realized this isn't working. And it's my fault. So God, the only chance I've got is if you show me mercy. To anticipate grace. That's how people were saved in the Old Testament, by the way. Same way you and I are saved, by faith. Except theirs was an anticipatory faith, looking forward to what God was going to do. Our faith is a backward-looking faith in what Jesus completed on the cross. That was our sacrifice. 2,000 years ago, God sent his sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, who made payment for sin. And did you notice that the ones that came to Jesus and loved him the most were the people that were deep in their sins? Pharisees didn't like Jesus. Sadducees didn't like Jesus. Nobody wanted anything to do with Jesus, except who? You know what the Bible says? Follow Jesus, lots of tax collectors and hookers. You're going to come follow Jesus? That's who you're hanging out with. Your political enemies and prostitutes. Well, I hear he's got some good things to say, but I don't think it's a safe environment for the children. (laughs) They would come to Jesus, and they would do things that were shameful. Come to see Jesus. She, this woman says, you know, Jesus has really changed my life. I'm, I'm going to go say thank you. I, I've got some anointing oil. And this is, was a very common thing. I'm going to anoint him. She comes in. She sees Jesus. And she starts breaking down crying. She anoints his head with oil, but she's just there weeping and crying. And her tears are falling all over his, his feet. And she gets so embarrassed. She takes her hair and she starts to wipe it up. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. It was brokenness. These guys wanted their friend to be healed. They started ripping the roof off of, the, of Simon Peter's house. So then they could get their friend down to Jesus. Little kooky people. Mary Magdalene, this lady had seven demons. She 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 was a demon-possessed, crazy woman. And Jesus cast the demons out of her, and she started following Jesus. Because she had nowhere else to go. Fishermen and zealots. And those who were religious and sophisticated saw this and said, if he was really a prophet, you think those kind of people would be hanging out with him? Galatians chapter 3 tells us that the law was our guardian to bring us to Christ. The Lord imprisoned everything under the law so that we would know that we were wrong and be at a place where collectively as humanity we were crying out for help. And the Lord said, here's Jesus. And when Jesus died on that cross, he provided the sacrifice that was needed. So we say, well, why do I need, why don't we have the law anymore? Isn't the law good? Because the law served its purpose. It leads you to Jesus. And Jesus Christ, the word says, is the end of the law for those who believe. You are insufficient to save yourself. And God's Torah teaches us that. But really, any law will do to show you that you're not perfect. That's the whole point of a law. And the only thing that will save you is God's gracious forgiveness. And that's the good news. You can be forgiven if you cry out to the Lord in desperation. And there are plenty of desperate people that are ready to be forgiven. Jesus provided all that was necessary to pay for sin so that I could stand here and offer it freely. You are a sinner, absolutely. Evil is real and it lives in you. It's not out there floating somewhere. It's in you. 
and it comes out. So what are you going to do about it? The penalty for lawbreakers is eternal death and hell, but you don't need to face that. You can get rid of that destiny if you come to Jesus. And this generation, come back and, and kind of end on this, is one that has rejected lawlessness. You might call that improvement. Well, we know we can't just live however we want. We know we can't just say whatever we want. We know we can't just sleep with whoever we want. So what are we going to do? We've erected a new law, and now we're finding that we can't keep it. And you've got bitter, angry people. But you know, those bitter, angry people are probably the most anxious and stressed out and fearful because they know it could be them at any moment. So people come around, don't you know that everybody's racist? You say, bro, it's way worse than that. <laughs> Everybody is guilty of sin. Well, I'm not guilty. Yes, you are. You know you are. You tell me I couldn't dig through your life. Forget, forget your Twitter account. I couldn't dig through your memories and find some things that would cause everybody in the whole world to say, stay away from me, pal. I don't want anything to do with you. You stand condemned. And, and the trap that folks are falling into is that legalistic one, which, because I recognize the standard that everybody else is failing, therefore, I, I'm cut loose and I'm okay. No, no, no. That doesn't work either. We know it doesn't work because we've tried in the church for way too long. It is only in Jesus that we find rest and joy. The world is raging against the new law. And there's a whole other wing of people that are saying, we got to get rid of that law. I'm like, I'm with you on that. But don't take us back to that old lawlessness because that wasn't good either. We've got to get back to God's law, back to the grace of Jesus Christ. Y'all, there is going to be a revival that sweeps through this country. And it is going to out Pentecost Pentecost. I truly believe that. And it's going to come from these people that are learning the pain and the, and the danger of the law. And they're going to experience the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's going to so transform their lives. The rest of the church is going to get left in the dust. If we spend all our time sneering at these people instead of weeping over them. Joy and peace and forgiveness and grace. That's what Jesus Christ offers. The world has moved on from the love thing, haven't they? Now they're on justice. Hey, justice is our thing too. But justice is a hard master. And we get to be the ones talking about love again. Talking about grace and forgiveness and joy. That could be you. Or your neighbor. Or your friend. Or your friend's kid has just gone crazy after they went to college somewhere. Just as all have sinned, all can be justified by faith. Not in the law or any new law that we could create, but in the one who fulfilled the law in himself and says, do you want my fulfillment? I've got plenty to spare. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his grace, y'all. Remember that evil is real, but it's been broken at the hands of Jesus Christ.